The role of the modern day pastor and ministry leader is changing. More and more pastors around the world today are ministry leaders who are doing multiple jobs and wearing multiple hats. They are bivocational or co-vocational leaders. They may be pastors looking for creative ways to use their church or staff to create income and revenue for sustainability. They may be ministry leaders who are looking for ways to launch for-profit initiatives or integrate innovation into their organization. They may be those who want to do missions globally and find creative ways to create sustainability. Or they may be marketplace leaders who are called to stay in the marketplace, but want to be part-time pastors, lay pastors, start ministries or nonprofits. This is the age of the new ministry leader. They wear different hats and do different things. They are technologically savvy and global. They are who God is using to make an impact in cities and communities around the world. This is the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast, and these are their stories. Well, hello, Northern Seminary community and Grow Center friends. We are so grateful to be joining all of you again today with what I know will be a great conversation around an incredibly timely topic, uh, perhaps more acute uh, than ever given the realities of church and ministry in a global pandemic. We are talking today about ministry and church in the digital age. And I am thrilled that our guest today is Dr. Daryl Bach. Many of you have um, heard of Dr. Bach along the way. Certainly, if you have taken courses in New Testament, you know his work. He is officially serving as the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and the Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies, if I have that right, Dr. Bach. Two for two. He's at Dallas Theological Seminary. He has, I believe, authored um, over 40 books and um, serves on a variety of boards. I know he's on the uh, board at Wheaton College and also, I believe, Institute for Global Engagement and a few others, uh, is a father, a grandfather, married to a wonderful woman named Sally for over 40 years. Um, Dr. Bach, welcome to our conversation today. We are so grateful to have you. Oh, it's great to be with you, Tracy, and greetings to the Northern Seminary folks. Um, uh, you're, you're one of the institutions that I really appreciate. Uh, I know several of the faculty there, and um, it's, it's just great to be with you. Well, we were excited when uh, your name came through our, our slate of, of interview friends. I was uh, personally just very excited. I've read your work and studied some of your material over the years. So I'm grateful to get this opportunity. So uh, before we dig into our topic today, specifically around your new book, um, I wanted to just take a quick moment and invite everybody wherever they are to join us in a word of prayer as we get started. So let's do that now. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for the gift of this space, uh, specifically this digital space that we share right now that you, Lord, can make sacred and that you use for your glory. Thank you, God, that uh, wherever we are, some friends joining us around the world in different time zones at different moments throughout their day, Lord, we are grateful that you have gifted us this time and space in human history where we can engage with you in these ways. Lord, I pray that you make this conversation uh, robust, help us uh, to know more about um, our digital age and help us to learn better how to harness the tools and avoid the pitfalls of it, ultimately, so that we can bring you glory. 
in the name of Jesus, wherever everyone is, they said together, amen. Well, Dr. Bach, uh, we are specifically going to talk today about your book, Virtual Reality Church. Uh, this is the moment where I usually hold up a, um, a paper copy, but I felt it was only right to uh, read this one on my Kindle. There you go. <laughs> so, um, great book. Uh, the, the subtitle, which I think was the most fascinating grab on this for me, is this, Pitfalls and Possibilities or how to think biblically about church in your pajamas, VR baptisms, Jesus avatars, and whatever else is coming next. So great title. Yeah, you have to take a deep breath. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us if you wouldn't mind, you know, there's a, like I said, we're in the digital age. We have been for a couple decades. There's probably a variety of reasons to write a book like this, but what specifically motivated you? And I know you have a co-author, Jonathan Armstrong. What what moment had you sit down and go, this book at this time? Well, um, one of the stories I like to tell about the book is that Jonathan Armstrong and I have probably spent a total of 10 hours together in the same physical space. Um, we uh, crossed paths a couple of times at a couple of conferences, starting with Lausanne, Cape Town in South Africa, and then again in an event in Thailand. In fact, I don't think we've been in the same room in the same time in the United States ever. And, uh, uh, but we cultivated a friendship uh, back and forth. And he, it's the idea for the book was really his, he works in this space as a matter of his own ministry uh, at, at, on campus. He was doing a lot of IT classes and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, and so uh, he he was starting the book and he and he wrote me and said, hey, would you mind joining me? I really would like someone to help me think theologically about about the space. And uh, since it's a big space, um, uh, you know, Internet's a big space. Uh, I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. So we did it together, collaborate. We started writing the book before COVID um, and then COVID came and changed everything about the book and everything about what we were saying, much of which was theoretical, all of a sudden became practical and active and, and et cetera. So the first chapter in the book is actually probably the, one of the last chapters written um, because it changed the orientation of the book. And uh, it also explained how we got into this space because I can tell you when I was doing my theological preparation, the, inter the internet basically didn't really exist and uh, um, and so, you know, all the things that I'm into now as a teacher at a practical level in terms of delivery, um, much of it um, was non-existent when I was training in seminary. So um, so that's what produced the book. And then we were just thinking about what's coming. Uh, what are the options? What does it offer? What are its limits? We're really committed to the idea that you need to understand the medium in order to use it effectively. And so uh, understand what it can do for you, what it can't do for you, and then and then proceed accordingly. Now, I promised you uh, soundbite answers, and that was a little bit of a footnote, but that's okay. <laughs> no, that was, that was great. I, I was so curious because we we have found ourselves, um, and I wonder if you would if if you if you would agree with this or 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 think differently on it. I feel like we've sort of, you know, we're all in the digital age, but yet I feel like certain churches and places have been quicker to adopt perhaps than others. And would you say the experience I think we most feel like we've had is that COVID all of a sudden forced us Correct. into, 
into and is that is that accurate yeah i think that a lot of people for whom it was theoretical i've been in the these conversations about the value of online education uh, really for a decade we were early adopters at dallas in terms of trying to make our scheduling flexible we had a lot of people who were working and trying to go to seminary simultaneously that kind of thing so the ability for for students to manage their class time was potentially very very attractive um and so uh and i went from kind of the traditional uh theological education you know it's people in the room it's it's direct contact that kind of thing to having an experience which i describe in the first chapter of the book with a class in perth australia in which i met with them online and not even so much vid video but just uh, audio and and uh in answers for five weeks before I walked into the classroom for a week. And I knew more about what those students needed when I walked into the class than I had in any class I had taught for 30 years in a traditional way. And, it, and the experience struck me as saying, there are certain things this medium does that are not conducive or not as easy to happen in the normal flow of a classroom that are very, very effective. And obviously there are also certain limitations. And so working through that, helped us, but you're exactly right. People had to dive in and uh, my, the debates that we often are engaging in with between faculty and administration about how to handle this space. Um, really, um, you, get, you get people who theoretically thought about it, but they've never actually done it. Okay, COVID took care of that in one swoop. Everybody was doing it and had to do it and didn't have a choice, et cetera. Another thing to be clear about, just to set the kind of the table for the conversation is we when we talk about virtual reality, we're really having two conversations simultaneously. We're talking technically just about the immersive environment that includes the goggles and the whole, you know, what is virtual reality. But writing the book, we actually had a constant conversation about how much that's related to virtual reality is just a part of the digital experience itself, no matter what form it comes in. So you will find us moving back and forth between those conversations uh, pretty easily throughout the book because a lot of the principles that apply, especially to VR, apply generally to the digital experience. Uh, and so we tried to cover the whole swath in discussing virtual reality church. So for us, a virtual reality church isn't just the church that meets in the context of goggles and run distance, but it's really um, any aspect of digital experience that a church is trying to deliver to enhance its ministry. Yeah, I, I found it to be such a helpful, um, a helpful book as far as, you know, I, I wear an a hat in education and I wear a hat um, at a church as well. And you know, for anybody who's listening right now wondering about picking this book up, I thought it was just such a wonderfully comprehensive conversation about, you know, everything from, you know, the Zoom fatigue to to goggles or, you know, or, or whatever else might be coming. Um, it, here's a question I, 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 I hear a lot. Uh, I hear um, educators wondering this. I hear pastors wondering this, you know, now that we have been kind of thrust into the immediate adaptation of this technology in COVID, what does, uh, what does going back look like? You know, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, will, it, it will, is the old normal now uh, a vestige of the past. 
Um, I mean, that's really – I think that's a question. I think it's a good question. I don't think we're going back to a situation where we just do things the way we did uh, because of the impact of, of the digital experience on people and also thinking through what the digital experience can offer to a church whose face-to-face contact with people is actually pretty limited. I mean, if you think about a, a normal week, and how much actual face-to-face contact you have in your church experience with people. You know, it's confined to Sundays, maybe an evening or a small group or something like that. You can count on two hands the number of hours that you spend face-to-face with somebody. But if you think about the potential of what it is to reinforce what happens at church, that it can be done digitally because it's logistically simple. All a person has to do is plug in, you know, et cetera. And the opportunities that that creates for you to support what is happening face-to-face in particular, I think that's where we're headed, at least initially. And so if people will think about how can we use the digital experiences in praying together or in reinforcing what happens in a message or in creating uh, a small group support, those kinds of things, uh, which which if you wait until you can gather everybody, takes a little bit of logistics. But if you say, hey, at, at 7.30, we're all going to get together and pray together or whatever, you know, it's very, very easy to cut out 15 or 30 minutes or whatever. Um, those types of activities, I think, hopefully, and hopefully, I think, are with us to stay. Yeah, I, I've heard... Um a lot of folks talking about these sort of intermittent moments, like you're like you're talking about during the week, where you know normally to gather to pray, it's going to mean depending on where you live, getting in your car, driving to the church, you know, exactly. and people are going to weigh their participation on the total time allotment. And now it's so much easier to just you know you know I you know we have prayer meetings with people on their phones and their cars, you know, so. Yeah, it's church in the Chevy. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people have been in meetings where um, three of them are in a room and one of them's in a car. Uh, and so uh, it just it opens up space. The digital world opens up space, both distance and location. And so um, in that sense, uh, it gives an opportunity if you think about it creatively. It also does one other thing. Uh, that people don't think about. And I think we barely tapped this potential. But certainly in the virtual um, reality world, my first experience of virtual reality, first time I put on the goggles is uh, I went to my photo library that I had on my iPhone um, just to look at some pictures in an immersive environment and just see what that was. What I didn't know was is that those pictures had a built-in sort of 360 capability, at least Mm -hmm. the ones that I had on my iPhone. And so I'm looking at a picture of the Sydney Opera House, which is one of my favorite architectural, you know, it's an architectural icon in, in the world. And and I'm turning my head and I realize I'm getting more of the picture than the I thought, because I'm not just getting the picture that I took that shows up on the screen, but I'm getting the full 360 view of what the photograph actually was when it was originally created. And I didn't even know it. Um and so I'm sitting here thinking about immersive experiences in the scriptures where you can replay the event. My second experience on virtual reality was uh, I'm an opera fan. And so I'm in an opera app in which you can put yourself on the stage and be standing next to the singers and that kind of thing. And I'm sitting here going, I'm experiencing this opera in a way in which it would be absolutely impossible 
if I were just in an audio, opera audience. And I'm thinking about, imagine being able to create, I've actually dreamed of this, a real audiovisual Bible in which you are able to physically place yourself in the scene, up close and personal, if you will, that kind of. So you can enhance the certain kinds of, you can recreate, for example, in Acts 27 on the sea voyage. <laughs> you may not want to do this, but what it would be like to be on the boat and be tossed to and fro, and probably not for two weeks, but still. You know, that kind of thing. And it, so it just opens up other kinds of possibilities that you couldn't even have conceived of being a part of your teaching before. The whole visual part of the potential. What I mean, I know in a classroom when you show a picture of a loca biblical location, how that can change the way people see the event, that kind of thing. It opens up all kinds of possibilities at that level. Yeah, it's stunning. I, I had never thought about immersing you know, folks in, in those biblical narratives like that, that is a, a whole, that's a whole world of exegesis. <laughs> exactly right. It's a completely different thing. And of course I've, I've done consulting work on movies where directors and writers are asking questions about everyday objects in the ancient world, the things that most people don't even think about, you know, what did the room look like? What was this configuration likely to be? What was the, what was the, uh, what would be the fabric that someone would wear on a toga? Those kinds of questions. I mean, uh, you know, things that you take for granted in your own world that you know, but not because you've studied it, but because you've just experienced. But in order to create that visual, you have to have thought through those kinds of questions, that kind of thing. There's just a lot. So there would be a lot of work that would go into something like that. But the payoff on the other end, I think, would be really interesting for people. Oh, yeah. What a tremendous life changing, you know, gospel moving you know, experience that could be. Well, yeah. it, go ahead. So here's a question then, a kind of a follow-up to that. We have this, this world we're in now, and then we have the reality. You know, I, I finished up seminary in the early 2000s. There was no class, obviously, that talked about any of this at that time. There still isn't at a lot of seminaries. That's true. And, and wisely, you know, pastors aren't trained to look at the camera because that's not why we became pastors, but yet... Pastors need to look at the camera nowadays. So, you know, what do we need to what do we need to teach new pastors? Oh, this is a great question. We when we went online at my church, and I'm on the teaching team, and we had a, we had a strictly online service followed by our in the building service that we were doing um, for people who you know weren't comfortable coming to church. And I I I viewed it as the most schizophrenic thing I'd ever done in my life uh, in terms of speaking. Because we had an audience, we our volunteers would come to that first online service so that they could then serve during the hour. So I had a live audience out there in front of me behind all the camera paraphernalia, et cetera. But the major audience that the service is for is for people who are online. And I, I found it very, very difficult as a speaker just by my instincts to connect with an audience, to, to keep my eye on that camera and to stay still. I'm also ADD, which is dangerous. And so you put that all together and I found it the most schizophrenic experience. And it took me two or three times doing it of saying, it's okay. The people you need to connect with are behind that camera. You know, that's where your focus needs to be. And the servants will be gracious and understand, you know, um, uh, it is, it's a very uh, different kind of experience. And actually, it reflects something that's another reality. And that is, there are certain aspects of worship that don't translate very well online. I tell people 
the music ministry that you have is very, very hard to replicate the feeling of being in an enclosed space that happens in worship when you're in a building. So that there's a translation thing that happens there with worship that, that uh, needs to be thought through in terms of how you handle uh, those dimensions of the equation. They're just, it, it's again, it's a strengths and weaknesses thing. It will deliver this and it will deliver some things you've never even thought about delivering, but there are other things in which there won't be the enhancement. And what I've, I've found in talking about this with people across the spectrum of the church is, generally speaking, the more high church someone is, um, the less connected they are to the digital possibilities. Um, and uh, whereas the person who just wants to re reproduce what's happening in the room without a lot of liturgical structure and that kind of thing, because the liturgical structure adds a dimension of worship to a service that a sermon doesn't, that kind of thing. Um, and so it's dealing with those kinds of questions. So part of this question is not just what the uh, medium will deliver, but what kind of worship orientation do you have and what kind of expectations do you bring to that worship orientation that then translates into the online or doesn't translate into the online experience? Yeah, that that's fascinating. We ran into some issues with uh, conversations like that uh, during Lent and, and how to, you know, we would do a Maundy Thursday service. And trying to do to invite some people in person to 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 do foot washing. Yep. And then inviting people to participate at home, but realizing there are people who live alone. And you know, how do you and are there things that you just you just do in person no matter what? Or do you think that everything, if possible, should have a an at-home version? Well, it's hard because I I mean I think you can make an effort to deliver something and then you're actually relying on the person's background and experience of this in place. Um uh, but uh, and some things translate and some things don't. I mean two simple examples are uh uh the Lord's table and uh, or communion and uh baptism. Okay? I really think communion is easier to do than baptism. Let's just, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so, um, you know, when we wrote the section on baptism in the book and thinking through that and what that would look like online, because there's another reality that's floating that I haven't mentioned yet, and that is there are certain contexts for which being digital is not just helpful, it's almost necessary. If you're in a high persecution country where gathering together is dangerous, Okay, and you can hide your identity, or at least attempt to hide your identity uh, digitally and gather together. That's one situation. If you're if you're a person who is um, geographically isolated in terms of where you live, okay, your ability to gather together is limited. If you're in a health situation in which you can't go to a building, your ability to gather together is is limited. So there's just a variety of scenes in which. The digital world may be the only practical way to gather a group around you uh, and to participate in worship, that kind of thing. So you've got that reality along with the tensions of what happens in the worship of the service. Communion is relatively easy to do. You share the elements at the same time. You know, you tell you tell people, you know, bring a cracker and and then I'll let people sort out the grape juice and wine problem. You know, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, baptisms are tricky 
um, especially in COVID where you're supposed to be social distancing and isolating because then the pastor is theoretically separated from the person they're baptizing, or at least they could be. Um, and so how do you represent that well? And then I think you have to have a theology that, that says at least to a degree, if it's because of a situation like we were in when we were intensively in the COVID situation where you go, you know, God probably knows the heart of how this is being done and what the intention is behind it. And that's okay. Some people will go, nah, uh, maybe not. You know, that we won't go there because we can't do it right. You know, they'll, they'll think about it that way. And what we tried to say in the book is just think through what you're doing, you know, and why you're doing it and how you frame it and all those kinds of things. And then make the call in relationship. I mean, some of it, some of it's rooted in the theology of what people think are taking place in the midst of a communion or in the midst of a baptism that also makes a difference and impacts the way you view um, this particular experience. Well, and it almost sounds like a, a heightened teaching opportunity. It is. If you're going to teach people to do communion at home, there's suddenly this whole conversation around elements and such that maybe you never had and you just took for granted during a worship service. No, exactly right. And so, um, you know, uh, so the the change of the experience <laughs> This is going to uh, the change the experience changes the experience. I mean, it does, and so um, so you just you you do the best you can to do that, and and then see what happens. and then you get feedback. Yes. <laughs> uh, one thing you can count on from church people is you will get feedback. Amen. So uh, and, and then you have to process um, the feedback that you're getting, and whether whether the value of the experience is actually um, being translated through the medium. Well, and uh, gosh, I could I could ask you about 500 more questions that are popping in my head. I know we're, we're kind of getting close on time, but there's a conversation I've heard where church leaders say, would, might, some church leaders might say, uh, as soon as the COVID restrictions are over, unless you have a good reason to be at home, you need to get your body back in church. You know, we worship an incarnational God. You need to get your body back to church. And then I hear other church leaders say, this is it. And you may have families that you never, ever get back in church again. And that has to be okay. Where do you kind of fall on that? I mean, are we are church leaders supposed to start really nudging people back to the pews once it's safe? Or do we just lay off of that? And this is this is the reality now. Yeah, I'm going to give you a two-layered answer. The first layer of the answer is, is that gathering people together, I think, is designed to be what the church experience is supposed to be. We're designed to be incarnationally related to one another. The second half of my answer has two parts, and that is, and people are going to vote with their mouse, okay? They're going to vote with their mouse. You you can urge them all you want, but it may be that the way you stay incommunicado with people are the people who choose for one reason or another to be out there. And you need to remember one other thing, and that is that the digital space allows you the opportunity to connect with people who at least initially would never walk through your door. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you view, if, if your church is at all inclined missionally um, to touch people who aren't churchy people um, and to, you know, do the gospel side of gospeling, if I can say it, or at least the front part of the gospel side of gospeling, then to, to give up online, it seems to me is counterproductive. Uh, for that very reason. 
So what, what you're trying to do is use the digital environment to invite people into the community experience. And if the community experience, even if they, even if it's suffering, now I'm going to put on a certain attitude towards this, even if it's a limited communal ex community experience that isn't ideal, if it's attractive enough, it might draw someone to where they finally say, you know what, I actually want to get to meet some of these people I've been seeing online and get to know them. Okay. And I have that potentiality. So I'm going to get up and go to church this week. You know, uh, I think that's how you have to view it as a, as an opportunity to expand your reach. Because the reality is one of the things virtual reality church stuff shows is people show up in virtual reality church and talk and think theologically uh, in ways that they never would have done if they had if been asked to come in through a church door. Yeah, it, they engage in a whole different way and maybe ask questions or chats or all kinds of things that they never would have done. Exactly. And the safety of kind of dipping your toe into something that because of a stereotype that you have, you might otherwise not even try. Uh, that can happen in digital space. I've heard. Yeah, I've heard it said that if you get a person who's new to your church now, they've likely actually been to your church three or four times before their body actually came to your church. So. Yeah, well, I think it's just the reality of the way. And, and the other thing to remember, this is I think this is hard for older people. And I'm going to put myself on the old side of that divide. Um, what we grew into, I'm talking about my generation, what we grew into has been normal for anyone under 35. Um, it's been their world almost from the get-go. In fact, if you talk to 35-year-olds, they will parse it out this way. What was mostly normal for me is certainly true of my teenage relatives. You know, so depending on how you break it down and where they are, they've been more immersed, and this has been the way they've been relating all their lives. So, um, so there's that adjustment. And I actually think some of the generational differences that we see in our world today are the product of that difference uh, of relating and practicing. I, there's an experiment that I do with my students about, you know, when I went to school, I was taught to outline, to organize my thinking, et cetera. But who goes to a web page that's laid out like an outline and actually goes through at a point at a time running down? No, you jump wherever you want to go. There's a different way of thinking. There's a different way of processing that's associated with the digital space that I think we haven't entirely come to grips with. Yeah, I don't think we will until these. I have, I'm raising three teenagers. I've got a 13, 14, and 17-year-old in my house. And my husband and I watch them with... I, they engage with the world in such a different way. And I, you know, fast forward 10, 20 years when they're leading, you know, ministries, churches, whatever, it'll be such a fascinating difference because they're just digital natives. And there was an experiment that I did. I actually took my wife through this experiment. I was, I was in, my daughter was buying furniture for their first house. And I have my, my expertise in furniture required that I remove myself from consideration. <laughs> and so, uh, so I'm sitting off the side of this furniture store and the furniture store had MTV on, which is something I never watch anyway. And I'm watching this and, and I'm counting how long an image is on the screen. And I never get to the number four across five minutes. So I call my wife over and I said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to count how long the image is on the screen there. And, and every time it changes, I'm going to start again. Another five minutes, never got to the number four, never four seconds was the max that, that, that an image was up. 
And I didn't even take into consideration the streaming that was happening underneath. And I'm saying that's what our kids consume and that and that's the way they process. No wonder we have issues with attention span, you know, <laughs> and, and those kinds of things. So the impact of what the digital world does to us, I think, is something we have not um, we have not sufficiently processed in the church and thinking through what that can and can't do for you. Again, I'm, I'm one of these people who doesn't I'm not all positive or all negative. I'm aware. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to weigh what it does well and what it does poorly. I want to compensate for what it does poorly. And I want to be all in on the stuff that it does well. Amen. Uh, sadly, we are out of time. I, I feel like we just got started. Um, you know, anybody who's watching right now, obviously you can pick up a copy of the book. Uh, Dr. Bach, you might not even know this, but at Northern Seminary this summer, we have a four-week summer course we're calling a micro course it's called doing church in the digital age and one of the required readings for that course is your book oh wow so um we're excited excited to be using it so any anybody who's on this call right now and just finds themselves wanting to engage with an, a community to talk about that please check that out on the northern website but um, dr bach any um any notes you want to give us on how to find your book and easiest well i mean uh, you can find you can find it right? anywhere where you can find books which means amazon yeah. uh you know i mean that's the simple that's the simplest way to put it since we're speaking digitally yeah. and uh um yeah that's the that's probably the best way to find it uh is to uh, is to either well put virtual reality church in a google search and Boom, you'll be there. And you have your choice. You can get the old hard copy, okay, which is the incarnational version of the book, or, the or you can get it digitally, okay, <laughs> and experience what we're talking about. That's awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Um, we're grateful uh, just for your voice in this conversation as a theologian and um, as a, a man of deep faith uh, to be able to reflect with you on all of this that's new is uh, is a gift. So thank you, um, Northern friends. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, again, check out the website if you want to get more information on anything that we've talked about today. And um, with that, um, blessings to all of you and go in digital peace. <laughs> <laughs>